Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. That widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and cease plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says... By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to be thinking about ambition, about the ambitions of the hearts of men. Uh, A lot of people have said a lot of different things about ambition in the past. Uh, Marcus Aurelius once said that the actual value of a man is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. So I'm just curious this morning, what is it that you are ambitious for and after, and what would those ambitions say about your worth? Some of you this morning might be ambitious to start a a company that goes great, right? And you make lots of money, have lots of power, get lots of fame, and Forbes wants to like write an article about you. Others of you might be thinking to yourself, my greatest ambition in life is to get to the next level in Zelda. Reality is all of us have some ambitions that are driving us. 
Uh, Aristotle, speaking of ambition, said that, you know, you actually have different kinds of ambitions. There is a proper ambition that is really kind of like a balance between those who have uh, a, a, um, a vicious, excessive ambition on one hand, like you're pursuing too hard after something than you should. Or on the other hand, he said, you might have um, the absence of ambition to the degree that uh, you really just don't have any drive in life. And it, it is, it is a, a violent sort of um, sadness that you are that little in your ambition department. What about you this morning? Are you ambitious and what are you ambitious for? Are you ambitious too much or too little? Are you ambitious after the right things? Well, this morning we're going to be turning our eyes. We're going to be looking uh, back in our series, looking at Jesus in the book of Isaiah chapter 10, where we are confronted with a king who has great ambitions, the king of Assyria. And he's a man that looks like he is winning in life. I mean, as he is going through and living life, it seems like success follows him everywhere that he goes. And yet what we're going to find this morning is that he was completely wrong in his understanding of his successes in life. We're looking at a series, uh, a section in the text in chapter 10, where you remember that Assyria is actually the great powerful nation that Judah and King Ahaz turned to from help and salvation from Israel. Israel and Syria had teamed up against Judah because they refused to join them in an alliance against a powerful Assyrian nation. And so Judah said, well, we're going to team up with Assyria. How do you like that? Well, God said, don't do this. Now, why did he say that? Because he wanted to get the glory for bringing Assyria against Israel and rescuing them. And yet, because Judah disobeyed, God said that I'm going to bring judgment against you. Why? Because God wanted the glory. Well, at the end of Isaiah uh, 9, what we find is, is that God is telling Judah about how he is going to judge Israel because they did not trust in God and because they oppressed the poor and they worshiped idols. And despite all of their positive vibes, right, that we talked about last week, God would judge Israel for all of this. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here, God is giving us a play-by-play of God's power even over earth's most powerful, godless, earthless rulers. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, how is this true that we just read? God is even powerful over the hearts of these earthly rulers. We're going to see this morning that this is a picture, a startling picture of the sovereignty of God simultaneously showing us the heart of this king, this evil king, as God's sovereignty is taking place. And we're going to see this. Taking notes, a great thing to write down. We're going to see that the doctrine of God's sovereignty should aim our ambitions towards the exalting of Christ in all things. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, it should aim our ambitions towards the exalting of Christ in all things. Now, the way that this text is broken down, you'll notice in verse 1 that there's a woe that comes against Judah. And then in chapter, in uh, verse five, there's a woe that's given towards Assyria. So we're going to look at both of those beginning with the woe that comes against Judah. First point is this. Worldly ambitions will turn from success to distress. Worldly ambitions will turn from success to distress. Now you remember again, Isaiah nine ends with God telling Judah about his relentless anger that's coming against Israel. 
And they repeated that refrain three times. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still stretched out in anger and wrath. Why? Why was God so angry? Don't miss this. God's relentless anger targeted man's ruthless ambition. It's really targeted at man's ruthless ambition. See, Israel took advantage of the poor and the powerless to achieve honor and prosperity, to make a name for themselves. They treated those who were lowly and under them as pegs to climb up on the social ladder. Now at first blush, these first four verses seem to kind of just recap everything that he just said in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of Israel. But take note in these first four verses, take note in verses 3 to 4, how the pronouns shift. That's right, we're talking about pronouns here, right? Pronouns tell us something about, I believe, what's going on in a shift of attention from Israel to Judah. Notice that they shift these pronouns from third person they, speaking of Israel, to the second person you, speaking of Judah. Asking Judah a critical question concerning their own infidelity. What will you do in verse 3? He says, What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee from help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Do you see it? He is angry three times against Israel. And now as Judah is thinking, get him God, he sweeps up Judah into this question. And what about you? Are you ready for the outstretched arm of God's anger? Have you considered your own life? You know, this reminds me a lot of Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. When he comes in and he confronts David about this man's sin before revealing to David that he's actually the man and he says to him, you are the man. David never considered that maybe everything that's being said about God's judgment could actually apply to him. And isn't that just the nature of our human hearts? We see with crystal clear perspective the speck in a friend's eyes from miles away and yet we miss the own log that's in our own eyes. Well, here we find the same thing happening with Judah. Judah, here, were those who were also guilty of ruthless ambition. See, Judah, in this story, he is not only the victim, this nation, but he is also the perpetrator according to God. He is not just an innocent uh, bystander who has been taken advantage of. He is not just the weak and the lonely. Uh, we also find that the leaders of Judah are involved in the same sins. And I believe that each of us, as we read this this morning, we need to pause and evaluate whether or not our ambitions are godly or godless. Whether they are excessive, absent, or they're that, God, that Goldilocks mean of being just right, Right? I mean, are we right in our ambitions or are we not? So let me just ask you this morning, how often have you even thought about your ambitions? Do you ever stop and evaluate not only what you do and what you want to do, but why you want to do those things you're doing? Have you stopped to do that? To think about what is it that if I look at my actions, what would they say are the ambitions that are driving those decisions that I'm making? 
It might be that you haven't even become aware of the way that you began with godly ambitions, and yet you've not paid attention and they've begun to creep towards godlessness and either access or absence of ambition, or, or, or maybe even uh, in some senses, you've started to be ambitious for the wrong things in the wrong ways. And think about it this morning about how many ways that that can happen to us. Uh, in your job, have any of you noticed how in your job, ambition can be a healthy thing that, that God has given you? God created work and He created it good. There is a special way in which we are like God as we work and as we are fruitful. God made us to glorify Him through the works of our hands. Uh, We are serving and worshiping God as we work. But how quickly can that good thing that God created us to glorify Him through, can that work become something that is off or bent? We can bend it one way towards idleness and that we are lazy and we hate work and we don't work. Or if we bend it just a little bit the other way in our ambitions, we can actually treat work as an idol or a God that drives and consumes us. All because we're not paying attention to the ambitions that are driving us and why we are working. And we as a culture, we can even as a culture find lots of encouragement to be idolatrous in the way that we view work because who doesn't like a hard worker? Uh, have you ever gone and applied for a job and they've said, well, um, what do you think about work? It's like, well, I'm a hard worker. It's like, ooh, one of those. No. They're like, good. I mean, are you willing to die for your job? Like, would you like waste your family for your job? Great. That's exactly the kind of employee that we're looking for. Or what about ambitions financially? You know, there, there are ways that you can have ambitions financially where you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? I literally had friends that were Joneses and they had lots of money. And everybody was always trying to keep up with them. And like you would buy more stuff and you're like, well, I can't really afford it, but they've got it. And so I need to have it. Or, you know, people will start thinking that I'm not as cool as the Joneses. And so people buy stuff to keep up with the Joneses and find themselves in debt and enslaved. And all of a sudden, um, they are enslaved to debt and debtors. Or on the other extreme, it could be that you are so miserly with your money and don't spend it that you're not generous and you don't look like God in the way that you are giving to others. Or what about your ambitions as someone who is single? I mean, it's good to have a godly ambition for the kind of person that you want to be your future spouse. But could it be that maybe you've got some kind of amalgamation in your heart right now of a vision for your future spouse that has been created by, you know, like um, models on TV uh, with a little bit of a combination of like the intellect uh, that you found from one of your professors and all of a sudden you've created like this superhuman being and you will never be able to find the godly woman or godly man that God has for you because you are so jaded by this vision of a woman who is actually only existing in the new heavens and the new earth. It could be that our ambitions have been set too high. Or maybe you've set them too low. So that you find yourself in a relationship with someone that is not pushing you and pressing you towards loving Christ. Someone whose great interest in life is not to worship God and to help you worship Him better. 
And so your, your ambitions have been set to low. And did you know that the Bible speaks of this, right? So, I mean, I think sometimes we focus on some verses and not others. So Proverbs speaks about this with men. A, a great verse, Proverbs 18.22, so true. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And maybe you're a single guy here today and you like have uh, all of a sudden said, that is what God's word says and that is my goal. In fact, that is my all-consuming goal such that it distracts me from worshiping God and being faithful to Him in other areas. And you've forgotten another verse. A verse that you should never quote before your wife. Proverbs 27.15 A continual dripping on a rainy day is a quarrelsome wife. They are alike. Not a good verse to share with your wife. See, daydreams can become nightmares when you trust them for what only God can provide. But here's something that I find fascinating. It seems like the grass is already always greener on the other side. Have you ever noticed that? Like, so, for instance, I have singles who come to me and they're like, I am so lonely. If I just had a spouse, like, I would never be lonely again. And yet I also counsel married couples who come to the church and they're like, we're so lonely and we're looking for what we call community. And we can't find community that's like fulfilling anywhere. Could you help us do that? And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, well, this is interesting. Like, some people get married so they're not lonely anymore. Now I have married people coming to me telling me that they're lonely. The reason is, is because we have ambitions to see things satisfied. And oftentimes, they are set in all of the wrong places or all of the wrong ways. Uh, The reality is, and please hear me, brothers and sisters, we all have a longing for fulfillment relationally. God put that in our hearts And the reality is, is that that longing will never ultimately be satisfied this side of the new heavens and the new earth. See, that longing is a voice that cries out to us that we were made for something more. We were made for union with Christ, to be with Him forever. And nothing is going to satisfy that until we get Jesus. We were made for Christ and nothing less. We need the fully man-man, the fully God-man, to satisfy that longing for relationship that we have. And until that day, what we have been called to do is not to be ultimately fulfilled, but to be faithful in relationships. And how often do you see folks who never find that community that they are so ambitious to find, that fulfillment that they long for? They run all over uh, the world looking for it, all over the city, new churches, new community groups, new uh, you know, sports leagues, looking for that community. And here's the secret to it all. Most of us, as we run looking for that community, are actually getting further away from it the harder we run. See, there are two essential elements, I believe, in real true community, other than Christ, if you want meaningful relationship. That's time and faithfulness. And so every time you move or you go somewhere else, you actually give up time and faithfulness that's necessary to build meaningful relationship. All of this is really speaking to our ambitions. And what about parents, your ambitions for your kids? Are are you ambitious for your kids in good ways? For their grades? For the way that they are involved in athletics? Uh, Could it be that you're actually concerned more about how people look at you on behalf of your kids than you're concerned for their hearts? Where are your ambitions? Where do they lie? Well, catch this. God puts Judah on notice that their ambitions are beginning to look a lot like Israel, whom He's saving them from. But catch the antidote that God offers here for sin-sick hearts, increasingly ruled by ruthless ambition. Here's what it is. Here's a solution. It's a vision of the far-reaching sovereignty of the King of Heaven, even over the hearts of the most powerful kings of the earth. He says, your your ambitions are broken, and here's what's going to fix them. A vision of the glory of God. 
If you see that, then everything's going to change. See, here we find that he raises up God, this king of Assyria, as an instrument of his judgment against Israel for their self-absorbed ambition. And then he turns and judges this godless king for his own ruthless ambition. So we see the interplay of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right here together. So we're going to look at this uh, first in verses 5 to 6 and 15, where we see the sovereignty of God on display. What we're going to see here is our second point, that the king of heaven's ambitions must shape our earthly ambitions. The, The king of heaven's ambitions or purposes must shape our earthly ambitions. Now I'm sure that King Ahaz of Judah felt a certain sense of pride for taking control over the situation with Judah in their danger and creating this ambitious, cunning alliance with the leader of Assyria for his, for his salvation. But what we find here is, is that Ahaz and Judah are really just junior varsity versions of the picture that God draws of the king of Assyria. Now don't miss this. With no possible rival to Assyria's domination in sight, they are in the middle of winning and killing it. And here in the middle of it, God is already forecasting the lament of his demise. I mean, this is like Babe Ruth calling center field, right? Uh, this is uh, like that sad throw at the end of the game last week against the Saints, right? Nobody saw that coming. Like, that was a miracle. And I apologize for saying the Saints would win. I felt like it was judgment against me. But God actually recast the ambitious, powerful king of Assyria is a powerless tool, an axe that's wielded in the hand of God to do His work. I mean, just look at verses 5 to 6 and then 15 and what God says. These are verses that really should, in many ways, challenge us and cause us to think afresh about God. Here's what He says, Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And then verse 15, God gives this illustration of what they are like. He says, shall the axe, speaking of Assyria, boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood. You see it, God here, putting on display his mighty sovereignty? Don't miss this. Judah and the nations stood in awe of the king of Assyria and this mighty, powerful, seemingly invincible nation. But here what we find is God peels back the blinds and the curtains of of what's actually going on behind the scenes, the spiritual reality that is actually directing the physical reality. And we see here that Assyria is nothing more than a tool. He's a, a rod, an axe, or a saw. You know, these these instruments in the hands of God. Now, if you think about an axe, an axe is powerless left to itself. 
The power of an axe is completely dependent on the person swinging it. You know, Assyria, they may be a sharp axe, but God's the great lumberjack swinging his axe for the glory that is his fame and that it might be known throughout the ends of the earth. That is God saying, I take the glory for what is done. You know, uh, after the football game last week, I, I never, I saw lots of interviews being done. They interviewed Casey Keenum about this amazing throw and then Diggs about this amazing catch. And then, of course, they went over to the other side and they talked about what a horrible reality it is. But nowhere in that whole string of events did they interview the football and say, what a great job you did. I mean, it was like you were just resisting the air and the way you spun. You were particularly brown that day. No, it was an instrument being wielded in the hands of men in the same way that God says men are wielded in the hands of God. This is exactly what God is saying here clearly in His Word. See, tragically, God is swinging at Israel, whom He calls the people of my wrath in Judah in in verse 6. Now just think about this. The people God called my people when He delivered them out of Egypt are here called the people of my wrath. And do you see what God's saying? He's telling Judah, you, you fear the earthly king who is merely an instrument of the heavenly king's judgment. God uses evil, godless men to bring about his purposes against a godless people. Now, this is mind boggling, but it's also all over the Bible. Uh, you'll remember in Genesis 50 20, There's an episode where Joseph's brothers come groveling and begging forgiveness from him for, you know, trying to kill him and stuff. And it's in the middle of that, after God has unfolded his plan of rescuing Israel through them, that Joseph says this to them. He says, I'm going to forgive you because, catch this, what you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be, catch, should be kept alive. In other words, you, we had two concurrently purposes going on. The hearts of his brothers, which were not good, but also the will of God, which was very good for his people. We see this in Exodus. In Exodus 4.21, you'll remember that God said, I will harden the Pharaoh's heart. Okay, God's going to harden his heart. But then you get to Exodus 8.15 and you're like, oh, well, did Moses like get confused? Because there he says the Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, which one is it? Did, did God do it or did the Pharaoh did it? But in Exodus 9.12, we see the Lord clearly hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So which is it, Moses? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? I would say that the obvious and quick answer is yes, both. See, Paul says God raised up Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath. So as we go deeper, we say, well, okay, so if both of them did harden the Pharaoh's hearts, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, then is there one that's primary, that's ultimate? And I think the Bible says yes. And this is how Paul communicates it when he speaks of the way that God raised up the Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath in Romans 9.17, saying this, It is for this very purpose that I raised you up, that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. In other words, God was using Pharaoh. His sending Pharaoh being raised up to make his glory known precedes Pharaoh's actually hardening his own heart. 
Pharaoh decided to do it. God was sovereign over all of it. See, God is sovereign and man is responsible. But don't miss this. The Bible everywhere credits God's sovereign will. Is that mysterious primary will that not only foresees and responds to the future, but actually drives it. You know, otherwise King Solomon spoke of God and his sovereignty in, in a, another way in Proverbs 21.1. He says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whichever way he will. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great. That's for pharaohs and kings. But what about me? I'm not a king. I mean, I know that God created humanity for like dominion to like rule over the earth and that kind of thing. But I don't think of myself as a king. I mean, maybe you're a lady who says, well, I kind of think of myself as a princess, but not necessarily a king or queen. So what does this have to do with us? Well, what's interesting is in Proverbs, he also says the heart of man in general plans his way, but it's the Lord that establishes his steps. And then in Ephesians 1.11, we have to deal with that. God says there that he works everything, everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, everything's kind of a big word. Have you ever noticed that about everything? Like, it's like everything. Well, like, what else is there than everything? Oh, nothing. Everything's a big word. And here he says, everything is worked to the conformity of his, and purpose of his will. Don't underestimate the ultimate sovereignty of God over all things, including the hearts of wicked men. See, God promises that his glory will fill this universe in ever-expanding ways, and he is committed and able to bring it about. Now, if you're thinking about that and you're going, that's kind of overwhelming, let me just say, welcome to the conversation. Like God's sovereignty is something that is mind-boggling to creatures because he is the creator and altogether unlike us. This is a mysterious doctrine and truth and reality about God. It is clear, but it is overwhelming. And none of us can even pretend to understand how this always works. God moves in mysterious ways. But we're simply called, I believe here, to trust that God is sovereign even over evil. See, God isn't like a watchmaker who created this world and then sort of stepped back and then he's like, Oh my goodness, what just happened? I did not see that coming. Or he's not like, well, I saw that coming because that's the way I made you, but I was never prepared to do anything about that. No, God is one who is actually engaged in his creation. He's also not like the pantheist God who says, I am in everything and everything is me and and that sort of thing where it's like, like everything is God and everything that happens is God. It's not that. He's still separate and distinct. I mean, it's a very complex reality that God is showing us about Himself. Our Creator God rules powerfully over His creation. But here's what this meant for Judah. See, Judah, in context, sought to arrest, God sought to arrest their ambitions and their pursuits from trusting in earthly kings to trust in God Himself, the High King of Heaven. He says, will you just... Like, reorient yourself right now. You're being controlled by your fear of the the earthly kings that are all around you. The things that you see with your eyes. And I want to remind you of myself, the heavenly king, who is in charge at all times. I don't ever take my hand off the wheel and ask somebody to take the hand, you know, the wheel. The knowledge of God's sovereignty, even over godless nations, 
ought, I believe, hear me, please, come in close. It ought, I believe, to call all of us to recalibrate, to re-examine, to re-evaluate the way that we are shaping our earthly ambitions and to reshape and reorient them towards the ambitions of the high King of Heaven. See, why? Because God works all things after the purpose of His will. And here's what I think is really helpful here. Catch this. If God works everything to His will, including the ambitions of evil men, then that means that God's sovereign over evil too. Now let me just be really clear, because this could get funky quick, okay? God does not sin and He does not do evil, but He is sovereign over it. See, God's not like the yin to Satan's yang. That's not what we're saying. And Job even says that Satan is a chained dog who is unable to move or act outside of God's permission. Do you remember that? He has to beg God for the opportunity to respond and to to harm Job and to, to take things away from him. And even then, God says, okay, but here's the fence that I'm going to allow you to work in. And you may go no further. So the Bible says that God has a different relationship to good and evil in the Bible. I mean, let me just say that really clearly. So, so maybe today you're under some kind of evil. You've been sinned against. You're facing that and you're thinking, well, so you're telling me that I'm supposed to like say that that's God in my life? Well, I don't like that. Well, just hear me, please. God has a different relationship over good and evil. James 1.17 says this, Every good comes down to us from the Father of lights. There is no good in your life right now that didn't come directly from the hand of the Father. And yet it doesn't speak of evil or sin that way. In fact, the Scriptures are very clear that with God there is no darkness at all. So I like what Don Carson says here. I think this is helpful. Here's what he says. It must be the case that God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, that He stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. That's a big word. It just means in different ways, right? And so He's not behind evil in the way that He's behind good. So here's what I think that that means for us. Here's what it means for us. Catch this. First, our ambitions must be shaped by God's Word where He reveals our desires where He reveals His desires. In other words, if we see God's clear spoken Word about the nature of, how, of who He is and how we are to live, then we, we ought to be quick to start to reorient our ambitions to make sure they are in light of and are appropriate with God's Word, that they are submitting to Him. Why? Why do we always conform our wills to God's? Well, it's easy. You never bet against the house, right? And if God is sovereign, He is in control, and you are always going to obey the Father, whose will is always going to come about. God is sovereign. As John Piper says, the cheap end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. See, every earthly ambition should begin right there. Does this glorify God, and does this lead me to enjoying Him more? Every earthly ambition should begin there. The chief end of my salary. The chief end of my family, of my relationships with my boss, of the way that I view sexual relationships, the way that I view my own identity, should begin with what has God said? And am I obeying this in such a way that it is to promote God's glory or my own? 
Like that should be the mean that decides or the principle that decides everything that I do. And second, I believe that this should humble our sense of ability to interpret success. Have you thought about this? I mean, I know it's hard to think about this in real time, but just imagine the king of Assyria looked like he was winning, but he was merely an instrument in God's hands. And so maybe this morning you're one of those that you feel like you are winning and you have no interest in the things of God. And you're thinking to yourself, I am winning. Why do I need God? I'm happy where I'm at. I know a lot of people aren't like that ever, but maybe that's you. And let me just draw you to attention of Assyria who thought that he was winning every day. And God says, the end is dark for you and you're not even ready for what's coming. If that's you this morning, you need to know that God, His sovereignty, it always wins. His will and His purposes. And it could be that right now, you're unaware of the fact that not only this present reality, but your eternal destiny could change in the blink of an eye. God will chop down some beanstalks in this life carrying men and women that you see as spiritual giants in your lifetime. And God will use people who live to make much of themselves and not God to bring about His purposes, sometimes even harming His children. But in the end, they will be exposed and God will be glorified. God is going to be glorified in the end. Are you ready for that day? But there's a third thing. Not only do we need to re-examine how we value success and, and see success, but this ought, I think, to encourage you that because God is sovereign and is working everything in conformity to the purpose of His will, God is able to make good on His promise to work all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Do you see that? Romans 8.28, it only makes sense. Ephesians 1.11 only makes sense if God is able to do what He has said He is going to do. He cannot promise that every good in your life and every bad thing that has happened in your life will all together work together for the good of all that is you and your future if He's not in charge, if He is not sovereign. There's no way to bring that about if he is not in control even over those things which are evil. And yet we find that God is able sovereignly to even work those things together for good. See, God's ways, they may be mysterious in their workings, but they're clear in their goals. God's glory and our good. Now this is really, I think, important for those of you who struggle with chronic pain or a deadly disease or an oppressive spouse or a derogatory boss or wicked leaders. Like as you have those folks in your lives or you're facing those kinds of experiences that feel so hopeless and you wonder, is there any meaning behind this? Is there any good that could come from this? Is this pointless or meaningless? Am I just wasting time here? Is there any hope for the future? And God says, because I am absolutely sovereign over all things, and I have shown you throughout the history of my activities with men, that I am sovereign in all times and all ways, that you can be assured, you can rest assured, that all things, even this thing that you hate, that discourages you, that causes you to cry out to me, that sometimes even causes you to ask the question of whether or not I care, you can trust that even those things are working together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to His purposes. Only because God is sovereign. If He is not sovereign, He cannot be good to us in all of the ways that He has promised. And here we find that God is absolutely sovereign to a degree that is mind-boggling. But here's one application that we should not take away from this. Here it is. It's that because God is sovereign, the king of Assyria is not responsible. Did you catch that? 
God is sovereign, and the king of Assyria is responsible for his actions. Both are moving in the same direction, the judgment of Israel. But both have different motives. Both have different ambitions. The king of Assyria and God's purposes worked in tandem or concurrently in Israel, but their motives were far different. Just notice third what happens in verses 7 to 14. We find the king of Assyria is responsible for his ruthless ambition. Just look at verses 7 to 14 where our sovereign God uses a godless man with godless self-centered ambitions. Here's what he says in verses 7 to 11. He exposes the heart of this king. Check it out. Verse 7. Of Isaiah chapter 10. He says this. But he, the king of Assyria, does not so intend. He's not about the glory of God, and his heart does not think so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols. So his, his hand is outstretched. Who carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols? So I have done to Samaria and her images. Now just think about this. This king is not boasting in God. He's boasting in himself. He's ambitious for more glory for himself, not God's glory. And his commanders are more powerful than the kings they face. He says, look at my commanders. They are like kings over these kings, greater than them in their defeats. Which I guess, I mean, I'm not going to say it, but we all know that means I'm the king of kings, right? Not only that, we find that he asked these questions And each of these questions looks towards a future ambitious claim of victory in light of the past victories that he's won. See, he will defeat Kalno in the future just like he defeated Carchemish in the past. And he will likewise take Jerusalem just like he took Samaria, who, by the way, both bear a reputation for worshiping idols like the nations rather than the mighty one of Israel. You know, as Alec Moyer says about Israel and Judah, their ultimate problem wasn't the size of their physical army, but apostasy. See, they weren't boasting in the king of heaven any more than the king of Assyria was. And by the way, that is the heart of idolatry. The heart of idolatry is seeking gods to help you accomplish your ambitions rather than seeking to set your ambitions in light of God's purposes. In other words, if you see God as some kind of instrument like your heavenly sugar daddy that's there just to get you what you want and need, rather than understanding that He is the sovereign God of heaven whom you sit under, who is authoritative over you, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who humbles you by the very thought of His greatness, if that's not what's driving you, then you might be worshiping an idol and have broken ambitions this morning. Those ambitions are dangerous. Just think about this. God willed for Assyria to destroy Israel and the king of Assyria willed to destroy Israel. Yet, notice how God then turns and judges His instrument of judgment. Did you catch that? He turns and He says, okay, so here, you're going to carry out my purposes. Okay, now I'm going to judge you for doing it. And here's what He says in verses 12 to 14. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart and the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. For He says, by the strength of My hand I have done it. And my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples 
and plunder their treasures? Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And no one, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Did you catch that? God used the selfish ambitions of this king to judge Israel and then turned and judged the selfish ambition of the instrument of his judgment. This is, this is profound. God judged him boasting in his own successful ambitions, ambitious pursuits and not God. But did you catch what it was that he boasted of? He boasted that he gathered all of the earth and that he conquered the whole earth with the ease of a farmer who has gone and taken eggs out of the nest of a chicken. Have you ever done that? I haven't, but I'm guessing that it's like, from what I hear on the street, really easy, right? Like, how do you get all those eggs in the store? And and he says they don't even move. Like, take the eggs, there's no pushing back. Why? Because it is pointless before the greatness of the king of Assyria. But did you catch who it is that he's boasting in all the while? It's himself. His power, his wisdom, all elements of a king. Now don't miss this. God uses this king to bring about his judgment and then judges him for his own wicked heart. In other words, God's sovereignty doesn't remove man's responsibility. We see the same kind of deal in all kinds of places. Think about Judas. Judas, if, if you were to say, like, Judas, what, I mean, why'd you do it? Judas would say, well, uh, the Bible says that, that Satan made me do it. But the Bible also says, you know, that, that like, I made me do it. And the Bible also says that, that God, it was part of His plan that I would do it. All of those are true. And here we find that, that Judas was culpable and responsible. He did what he wanted to. In fact, this king didn't even know his success ultimately derived from God. This king did what he wanted. He sinned against God even as God used him. And here's the reality. We, we do have the freedom to make meaningful decisions with one small caveat. Left to ourselves, we always choose sin. Now let me just explain how this works. You know, I've told you before, I've got a dog, Shep, who is a great dog if you like dogs. And Shep loves to run into the house, and when he gets really thirsty because somebody forgets to fill the water bowl, to drink out of the toilet. And you can hear him lapping up water like it's like he's trampling through the ocean, right? I'm like, what's going on here? Oh, this is bad. And I'm getting grossed out as I listen to it. And then, of course, he always does what? He runs in right after that and rests his head on my lap where he leaves a nice wet spot. You know, spit would be bad, but toilet spit is worse. Now, when he does that, I do get a little frustrated, a little bit mad, but here's the reality. I don't expect different from Shep because Shep's a dog. Now, If my six-year-old Jack were to run into the house and start drinking water out of the toilet and then were to run into my lap and put his head on it and spit all over it and leave toilet spit water all over my lap, would I be a little bit frustrated when I say, hey, we need to talk about living different? Yes. Why? Because he's not a dog. It's not his nature. He's got a different nature. He is different. He's more glorious than a dog. I have higher expectations, mostly of Shep than Jack. Well, it's kind of the same way with us in the Bible. The Bible says we have a nature, a sin nature, so that we are given the ability to make choices. And we choose what we love, and we follow the things that we desire. And yet, left to ourselves, 
sin is always good. That's what we choose. Romans 3.12 says no one does good, not even one. And Isaiah 63 says our best deeds on our best day are filthy rags. Unless God acts on us, we are, we are using our freedom to choose sin, not God. And God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we don't make meaningful decisions and that we will be held accountable for those. And In other words, the sovereignty of God shouldn't kill our earthly ambitions. It does not destroy our responsibility. In fact, what it ought to do is give birth to new godly ambitions. See, we are, we are completely dependent on the goodness of God in our lives. In fact, Jerry Bridges says the thing that really connects, the, the, the reality that connects God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is actually a word called dependence. We are only able to please God and have hope for pleasing God because God is sovereign and good and able. It's not because of us. And every good that we do is ultimately dependent upon God. I mean, it's like Philippians 2.13 says, right? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he says, for, which is the ground of all of that working and striving after God, because we need to strive after God. He says, for, here's what's it grounded in, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to act for His good purposes. Just think about that. God at work in us in our striving. We strive, and it is God's sovereignty that works through us. And of course, the greatest example of God's sovereignty working through evil men has also brought about the greatest grace in our lives, hasn't it? As we look at the New Testament, we look at the cross as the climax of God's purposes for us. Where His very Son, Jesus Christ, came and laid down His life for our sins. And He was raised from the dead to declare that anyone who will turn from living for sin to setting their ambitions towards living for Christ as King, that that person will be saved. And they'll no longer be defined as a sinner and a rebel who deserve the wrath of God. Christ absorbed the wrath for all of those who would repent and believe so that they would be exchanged. They would exchange from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We become children of the living God by virtue of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And catch this, don't miss this. That was all the plan of God. And here's the problem. You read through the New Testament and you'll find out that many people conspired to put Jesus to death. The Bible tells us all kinds of people did, the scribes and the Pharisees. They planned, they meticulously planned to put Christ to death. Big plans, godless plans. Godless plans led godless men to try to kill the God-man. And not only that, we find that Satan himself conspired and worked it out and led men astray so that they would kill the king of glory through whom it was our only chance at redemption and restoration and reconciliation with God. Satan did it. And not only that, we find as we read a little bit further that it wasn't just that, it was that actually God the Father had preordained that Christ would come and give down, lay down His life for you and me as a ransom for many that we might be restored and reconciled. And it doesn't just stop there. We're told that also God the Son willingly came and laid down His life to save us. So do you see it? A whole lot of planning going on. Even a lot of spiritual planning. We've got Satan planning. We've got people who are enemies of God planning. And yet at the end of the day, we find that it is the purposes of God ultimately overall that triumph. And isn't that good news for you and me that God's plans triumph? They triumph. That means that we become forgiven of our sins, redeemed, restored, so that we are children of the living God. I'm, God, I'm so glad that God's plans always went out. It is good for us. So let me say this this morning. If you are a non-Christian, 
And your great ambition is not, has not been finding Christ. Then this morning, your ambitions should change. You should pursue Christ with everything in you. Because apart from Christ, all of the things that you are living for will fail. You know, you, you don't have a, a U-Haul that you're going to carry behind your hearse into heaven. Your only hope is to be found in Christ. The only hope of eternal life and forgiveness with God. So let me encourage you, don't leave here this morning without repenting and believing. I'd love to talk to you about the gospel. Uh, our brother Toby already said he'd love to share the gospel with you. I think there are lots of people here who would love to share with you the love of Christ. Don't leave without having that conversation. But also, Christian brothers and sisters, do you see how the cross of Christ ought to reorient us and give us new ambitions that seek to boast in God and make much of Him rather than ourselves. Is that you this morning? Let me just ask you. We, I believe, need to have much bigger ambitions than just killing the next bigger deer that we can step on our wall, put on our wall. Don't get me wrong. I think it's great that you have big deer on your walls. It's great. I love that. I would love to put a big deer on my wall. But we need bigger ambitions than putting another head on a wall. And maybe this morning your biggest ambition is buying a bigger house. Nothing wrong with having a nice house, but is that the ambition that is driving your life? Maybe this morning you really are like super excited to get home this afternoon so you can get to the next level of Halo or something. You've been made for more than video games. I love video games. We've been made for so much more than video games. So, we desire and strive to know God's Word better and better if we are being driven by the ambition for God and for His glory and for His Son. We want to know His Word. If you're not hungry for God's Word, then you have not been struck by His purposes for you in your life. He wants to reveal Himself to you and speak to you. Are you listening? Men, we should aspire to be elders even if God hasn't called us. It's a good thing, a noble aspiration. Our mature Christian men and women should strive to disciple the next generation of believers. If you're a mature believer, are you dreaming about, thinking about, planning, coordinating how you can pour into the next generation? You know what? It might sound super complicated. Try meeting for coffee and going through the Bible together. Being faithful and consistent and seeing the way that you can shape others. Young Christians need that. That has made all the difference in my life. It has made all the difference in many lives here. Be that person. Be ambitious for it. And what about our church? What are we ambitious for? Is it just filling a building or is it making the glory of Christ known? I mean, don't we want to see healthy churches built here and other churches in Phoenix and in the Philippines and in Scotland and to the very ends of the earth? I mean, isn't that what we're about? We want to see God's glory going to the ends of the earth and getting to be a part, even if in a small way, of that great thing that God is doing? That's what I want to do. You know, we long as a church to raise up more pastors who love to make much of Christ and to boast in Him. We, we work at our jobs. And are we doing so as under the gaze of God to the glory of God? But do you go to work thinking to yourself, man, I don't know how I ended up in this job. Or do you go to work thinking, you know, I wonder why God sovereignly placed me here. I wonder what He's up to. 
about what way he wants me to make much of him here. It's going to be hard from a cubicle, but I know he knows what he's doing. Have you thought about the way that God wants to raise your gaze towards the glory of his name and make others, make himself known to others? Relationships. Relationships are an eternal investment to make God's name great. That's what your friendships are about. Relationships between guys and girls and girls and girls and guys and guys. It's about making much of God. It is not about self-gratification. It's about seeing them grow into the image of Christ as they see who Christ is. Do you see it? The gospel calls us to shape our ambitions in light of God's revealed purposes. And hear me. Come in close. That makes life exciting. So maybe this morning, the reason that you are dull with life is because your ambitions have been far too small. Let's pray that God would reshape and recast all of our ambitions in light of our great God. Let's pray together.